0: So here in Mirror, Wisdom Reflected, I act as a mirror to get the wisdom reflected from our special guest, whoever is there on that day. Now that we are hearing so much about bankruptcy and insolvency and the Vijay Mallyas and the Nirav Modis, what is going on is the biggest point for a common man. There's so much that we keep hearing regularly. And I'm here to find out and explore what to do. But actually I would have worn a mask, you know, during Corona time, it doesn't help, but I would have not liked to identify myself because by the end of this speech and the end of this talk that Bhargavi will be here, I want to make a perfect plan for perfect planning for bankruptcy, what is going on in this world. So I should be wiser that I should not be caught by the enforcement agencies and or any other person how well can i plan myself so that i can get along and the way things are going on what i see is these guys are getting scot-free why is it that i not learned all this art well what is right what is wrong and what is the correct answer what is the government doing we very well know how trump had been ridiculed regularly in the us as the president of united states that he had had filed bankruptcy twice And I remember in the US when I was studying, ever so often, somebody or the other is filing a bankruptcy. Macy's, the largest departmental store, filed for bankruptcy. Now, these are things, Sears, Macy's, all the big names in life who never changed in life, they filed for bankruptcy. Chapter 11. Now, that is something interesting. Put up your hand and say, well, there you go. I made my money. I have siphoned off my money. Don't touch me. It's your problem, the debt is your problem and the fun is even more. All those people who have declared bankruptcy were even better clients for the banks because they were the risk takers. They were the ones who were ready to take the risk, make the banks earn more interest and yes, we'll talk about Yes Bank here, how things are going on and how people who were rejected by other banks were given loans how they were not questioned so well, and their ability of risk taking, and the underhand dealings, and what is going on. But these are the people who are very favored by most of the bankers, all the great Taiwala sitting there. If I go for a like a do- poor doctor for a loan, I have 1000 documents to be submitted. And the best thing that I heard with all of them is, you will be given a loan when you don't want it, which means you are adequately funded then only you get a loan if you are not funded you don't get a loan and here it is you know as the good old saying goes if you are borrowing 50 lakh 1 crore 5 crore 10 crores 20 crores 50 crores you got to work hard for it but if you borrow 5000 10000 crores the general manager of the bank comes to your house and gives you the papers and that's so very interesting because this is exactly how the world works The higher the risk-taking ability, the higher the powers that you have, the more leverage standards that you can get in life. Lehman Brothers, like like the 2008 crash, 144 times leveraged, whoa, and that's not funny. Look at the debt mounting in the US across the world, the debt mounting, the figures are mind-blowing. When will we ever come out of all this? But then individuals, corporations, some of them make mistakes. It was not the right business model. Like the cycles really picked up during the Corona time. And and uh, people for the sake of health and otherwise started cycling. But our Kodak, the famous Kodak, Nokia, all those guys went down the drain. They never change with time. There is history behind all of these people. There's so much to learn, which business will go far to when. And we might just say that, well, they never grew with time, not that they were stupid. They had a run for almost 50 years bigger than any newcomer in the market. Samsung never knew what Apple was coming with. It was a secret and they came up with something phenomenal, a great plan. And I know Jeff Bezos said this last year, that every company, even my company may not be there after 20 to 30 years. Now that's very interesting. Very, very interesting, the business models, despite knowing everything, despite the circumstances, how the disruptive technology changed, how a lot of people went bankrupt. And unfortunately, during Corona time in India, we have had huge problems. Small karyanawalas, small people with loans who had bought a new car, new house, thinking that their job is secured. are the ones who cannot pay those loans, there is a huge amount of debt which is to be paid. I mean, I'm it's mind-boggling figures about the NPAs, the non-performing assets of the huge banks. And of course, they are more so with the public sector banks rather than the private banks. Besides the exception, yes bank. And how do these pile up? Who's genuine? Who's not genuine? Who's going to be losing in the whole game? Is the common man losing? Is the government losing? Finally, the money comes from the taxpayer. Now I have money in yes bank or PNB. Or I have FDs. And suddenly I'm not allowed to withdraw my own money. What the hell? What is my risk reward ratio? Something which is absolutely normal is where I'm stranded. And I have to beg for my own money. So the debt... I'm not in equity, I'm not in high profile leverages, I'm in debt, but still I may have problems and this is exactly where we have, we have with us a very learned friend, Bhargavi Zaveri, she has been to the Harvard Law School also, she's a lawyer basically and an economist, she's worked with the Indira Gandhi Institute in Mumbai, she's been responsible for a lot of opinions in the central ministry for finance. She's worked closely with the NCLT. And to figure out what these bankruptcy laws are, where do we stand, an extremely intelligent, sharp human being that I've met in my life. At a very young age, she's achieved a lot of success with Harvard behind, with a lot of accolades here, a lot of papers published, a lot of inputs to the government. Welcome, Bargavi, to the show, and thank you for being here.
1: Thank you, Dr. Mehta, for this really kind introduction. Uh, Thanks for having me here. It's an honor. Congratulations for putting together this lovely talk series. I get to hear all about it and I've seen a couple of episodes and I'm really excited. So um, do you, how do you want to do this? Do you so want to ask me questions?
0: Of, that's what I'm saying. So tell me something. What was the pre-Kingfisher era and what is the post-Kingfisher era? You know, that was the, that was the turning point for the NCLT and the bankruptcy and all to be formed. One fine day, Mr. Vijay Malia disappears. Now he's the guy, actually, he's a small fry in the whole thing for the huge debts that I see running around. ILFS, one lakh crore, SR steel, one lakh crore. Whoa. I mean, these are figures which are huge. Amani clan, huge figures. Uh, Bush and Steel, Videocon, Yes Bank, PNB. Wow. Hmm. The, the amount of NPS and how much is it going to lead? And now what is going to be coming out in the next few months after this? So Tell me what, why, what happened to Vijay Malya? He was ready to pay. He said, take a haircut. You know, I won't pay you the interest. What is the interest component? And, you know, I'm ready to pay the basic amount. Now tell me what and how was this law formed and where do we stand? Sure. Thank you. So,
1: uh, you know, my favorite uh, uh, sort of ironic statement is that the country owes a huge gratitude to Vijay Malia. because uh, had he not... Uh, Blown up, you know, just for the lack of a better word that doesn't occur to me right now, in the spectacular fashion that he did and he fled the country, I don't think we would have seen the kind of political will that we saw in 2015 in pushing the insolvency reform through. So, you know, we can talk about Punjab National Bank and what happened in Yes Bank, what's going on with DHFL, what's going on with ILNFS. And, you know, I would say let's keep that for the end for two reasons. One is that uh, you know, people will stay till the end because they all want to know those, that story. Uh, I'm joking. <laughs> and, uh, but the more important reason is I think you're right. It's very important to understand what was our history like? What was pre-2015 like? Uh, what are the mistakes that we made? How did we try to fix them? And where have they gotten us here? And why are we seeing the, you know, the front page news always brimming with bankruptcy cases, right? So put yourself in 2011. Okay, we, are, we have just come out of the global financial crisis and 2011 to 2016, what India saw was aggressive lending practices throughout the banking sector. So when I say aggressive lending practices, I mean exactly what you mentioned in the beginning, which is that I found a good business, I'm going to keep lending to her, him, even if he defaults i'm going to keep renewing that loan this is called evergreening in the banking circle where a person where a person defaults you don't enforce the debt you actually give him more money to repay your old debt right so that is what you keep doing banking banking regulation is a problem because it then allowed you to keep evergreening
0: these loans evergreening now but the other thing which i realized evergreening was that I have to pay X amount. Say I have to pay a thousand crores to the bank. Somehow I managed. I take a loan from my friend, and I pay it back to the bank. And he again reborrows the same money from the bank. And is that evergreening? Is that the green laundering of the money? It's it's finally yeah. The- you
1: could. Yeah, it's a good term. Yeah. It is essentially. Uh, I borrow thousand rupees from the bank today. Uh, to how I have to pay. Uh, uh, well, well, uh, I'm am just saying it for, for the sake time. of simplicity. I understand smaller numbers better. That is why. So uh, anyway, so I borrow a certain amount of money from the bank today uh, and I have to pay my first installment in the next quarter. I default on it. What should the banker do? The banker should typically take me to court or enforce my security because one default is never one default. One default essentially means that you are already facing financial distress and you're likely to default in for the next installment and for the next installment and so on and so forth a default indicates that stress is already there, right? But what did bankers do from 2011 right up to, I would say, 2015? Uh, bankers kept evergreening those loans, right? And, uh, uh, we, and there was... We, now, bring yourself to 2015 when, you know, we realized that, okay, this has been going on for too long. And how did we realize that? because we had an RBI governor. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's called Raghuram Rajan. (laughs) I'm joking. Uh, Raghuram Rajan was the governor and he initiated something known as an asset quality review. What does it mean? It basically means he told the banks, tell me what is the extent of your NPAs in a truthful manner. Okay, so when once that started, that is when the extent of the crisis really came to the uh, to the forefront. Now, it's not like we didn't have debt recovery mechanisms then. We had courts then, we had RBI then, we had your debt recovery tribunals then. But for some reason, they weren't working too well, okay? One is of course, the banking regulation problem where bankers were keeping on evergreening loan. The second is courts were not designed to enforce debt contracts. Many people like to blame judicial vacancies, many people like to blame delays, etc. But there is a bigger problem, which is that judges do not are not trained to enforce commercial contracts in a speedy manner. So we had all those problems going on, and frankly, it didn't give us great outcomes. So if I may just uh, allow be allowed to share this one screen, and that yes, should really tell us the story. Just give me one second. Can you see it?
0: Yes, we can see it.
1: Okay, so this is what we looked like in 2015. This is World Bank's resolving insolvency rank we are ranked we were ranked 136 out of 180 countries and if you look at the other countries i mean i've picked up the best countries of course but uh, even then right we we were pretty low in the ranking the number of years that it took to resolve an insolvency situation in india okay we were in the we were in a we were taking a far longer time than your singapore and you know what uk and us and what have you recovery rates Okay, just sure, principal amount recovered. Look at our recovery rates. We were in the range of about 26%. And look at the recovery rates for the other countries. And where does that take us? It's, this, that is, this doesn't just mean that, oh, insolvency is a problem in India. This means that getting credit itself becomes problematic in India. So if you see this, our getting credit rank again, very, very low because our insolvency framework just wasn't working. All right. And uh, we were heavily dependent, all the credit is being concentrated in banks, where our savers deposits are sitting. And uh, it was overall getting extremely stressful about what if these banks blow up because these people just don't pay, what will happen to the savers and then it comes to the taxpayers money, right? So we are sitting in 2014, 15, and we figured that, okay, small tweaks, to the law small tweaks to debt recovery tribunals just filling up judicial vacancies is not going to solve this problem the system is fundamentally broken and we need an overhaul so that is what really led us to uh, thinking about a new bankruptcy law altogether uh, as opposed to just tweaking existing laws and frameworks now coming to you know, what the bankruptcy law looks like, what its design is, why is it the way it is? Um, I want to actually run every your audience through an example. Uh, think about it. You are a dentist chain, right? You operate a dentist clinic and you have a chain of clinics around the city of Bombay, for example, right? You are in the middle of COVID. People are postponing their dental treatment, right? Because nobody wants to meet the dentist, the dentist doesn't want to meet the patient and so on and so forth. So for about nine to 10 months, your revenue drops, right? Because patients are not coming, patients are not paying. What happens? Your EMI is continue to accumulate. If your equipment has been taken on loan, it continues to accumulate, you have to pay your electricity bills, you have to pay your staff. So the, the debt keeps on mounting, Without, and the revenue sort of plummets, right? Now, if I were a bank, if I were a banker to you, how would I think about this, right? I would say I have two options. I can either sell the dentist's equipment. I can just auction it. Or I can hope that your business will pick up again post-COVID. People will start coming back in. And yes, I will not get the EMIs for these 10, 12 months, but subsequently I will make up for it. Right. Um, this is where the first principle of bankruptcy generally comes in, which is identifying business failure from financial failure. What is a business failure? A business failure is where a business model becomes genuinely unviable. If in today's day and age, you're making a typewriter it doesn't matter how much time I as a banker will give you, you will never be able to repay my loan. Nobody's buying typewriters now. Think about opticians, okay? Or your GKB, the opticals, et cetera, of the world. With Lenskart coming in, I mean, I'm just conjecturing here. I'm not saying that they're doing badly or anything, but the creative destruction that you mentioned in the beginning, right? Uh, All those businesses, it is possible even Amazon, it is possible that if a disruptive technology does come in, it is possible that those businesses will be failed business models in the future. In that case, uh, that is a genuine business failure. And the reality is that the only way to recover money is to auction off the assets piecemeal, right? That's what, that is what is called a liquidation. However, there is something known as financial failure, which is the dentist's example. It's not like the business has failed. It's just that there is a temporary liquidity cash mismatch. And uh, after 10 months, 11 months, 12 months, if the creditors are able to give you some time, you'll probably be able to repay your money back in all likelihood. Because so what, what happens? You have to be able to distinguish between genuine business failure and financial failure. So that's principle number one, which I think I want to put it out right there because most of the times we read about frauds in bankruptcy. Why? It's not that, you know, the occurrence of frauds is rampant. It's just that in a, news- a newspaper is likely to report a fraud much more than a genuine business failure. Our human minds are wired to read about divorce much more than we are wired to read about successful marriages. Similarly, we are wired to read much more about fraud than about genuine business failure. Right. So that's, that's number one. But then, yeah, uh, sorry, no problem, right? Okay, now the natural question is who decides what is a genuine business failure versus financial failure, right? Uh, Pre 2015, a lot of this decision making was left to courts, it was left to members of the civil service, like the IAS officers, et cetera, where they used to be sitting on these tribunals and boards and be deciding, Aap ho mere samne? is this a genuine business failure or is this a financial failure? These are people who have never run a business in their lives. They are not trained to make these decisions. They also do not face the consequences of this decision, which means that we realize from India's past mistake that we shouldn't be leaving these decisions to court not because courts are slow, courts are slow, there's no doubt about it, but because judges are not trained to make these decisions. They're not supposed to be doing this work. The best person to make this decision is the creditor who lent the money in the in the best, in the first place, right? Now, okay, let's go back to the dentist example. You're sitting in the 10th month of COVID, right? And you tell your bankers, sorry, boss, not this month, maybe next month. The bankers say that look, I can sell your equipment, but without you, the dentist clinic is nothing. You are what makes up this clinic and this chain, right? So what does he do? He says, let me get all the creditors around the table and let us think if there is a way to restructure our debt. What does that mean? Restructure, you know, what does it mean? It means that can we take a haircut? Can we all take a little bit of haircut and adjust with you for the next six months so that in the seventh month, what we all get will be more than what I will get by just selling your equipment in a piecemeal fire sale fashion, right? So that is called collective action. And that's what the IBC really made
0: possible. These are, these are very subtle examples. What bothers us is, you know, a bush still steel 45,000 crores and it is sold for some peanuts. You have a video con which is sold for peanuts. You have 30,000 crores and you're selling for 2,000 crores, 3,000 crores. You have Alok Industries sold for 3,000 crores with 30,000 crore debt. Now, these are unexplainable figures. Who is bearing the loss? The haircut. What is this haircut and who is bearing the loss in this? Who Who is doing what? Okay. So, all
1: right. So, in the beginning when we started, we said there were two client. problems.
0: A poor dentist is a small professional. He is peanuts. Yeah, in. I agree. I <laughs> agree. I agree. agree. Like we doctors will keep working. That's not a problem. Bankers find the best suckers are doctors. They're always ready to give money to doctors because they know they wala paisa. Usko choice nahi hai. So that that they're the best suckers, doctors for all bankers.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The it's famous fun. saying about bankers is that the banker is the guy who gives you the umbrella when it is sunny and wants to take it away when it is pouring.
0: Not just the so umbrella I, and the shirt also. Yeah.
1: It's the famous, yeah. So okay, so let's come to your difficult cases. Okay, the large cases. Let's understand this. When there is a financial distress situation, the assets that are available are obviously not of the size that they were when you gave the loan. There is a reason why the person is defaulting, because his revenues have fallen, because his assets have fallen, which means that everybody has to take a haircut. The extent of the haircut, I agree with you. We have to debate whether it's a right thing to do, the wrong thing to do. But the truth is, what the IDC did, is it allowed this decision to be taken by the very same creditors who had lent the money, right? So now, part of the problem, like I said, is that a lot of these cases are the legacy cases, right? They were facing financial distress for a very long period of time. And in bankruptcy situations, time is of the essence. I mean, my favorite saying is that a bankrupt company is like an ice cube. For every minute of time, it's melting away. The asset values are fall, spiraling down. Vendors are canceling contracts. Your clients are canceling contracts. You literally have barbarians at the gate, right? So the value is deteriorating really fast. So the, the bankers, have, when the decision-making was left to the creditors, they had to decide, either we take this haircut or we sell these firms piece by piece in a liquidation fashion where nothing remains. Here, the firm continues to remain a going concern. The promoters lose control. A new buyer is willing to pay upfront. We take it today. so And we take the haircut. We bite the bullet. And that's a good thing for the economy because unless the bankers take a realistic view on what can be recovered, actually, you know, they'll keep sitting on this and what you will eventually be able to realize in a fire sale fashion will be a fraction of what you will get if the firm is actually kept alive. For every, you know, sort of videocon example, which by the way was facing financial distress for many many years before it actually came into, uh, you have an SR scale example, for example, where the recoveries were pretty good. I mean, even in the most advanced countries, I showed you that slide. You are looking at a recovery of about sixty percent, seventy percent on an average. We have brought up the recovery rates in India from what it used to be 25% was the official rate by the recovery rate which I showed you on the slide we have the average recovery rate under the bankruptcy code today and I'm not you can look at the uh, the website it's in the range of 45% to 55% which is not bad at all for the period of time that these cases were actually sitting in distress okay these were cases which were sitting before BIFR for example they have been tried to be restructured by RBI So there is the legacy cases where you see these huge haircuts and there are the fresh defaults, which are easier to deal with under the bankruptcy system. And to answer your question, the haircut will be borne by those who decided to keep renewing the loans without really enforcing them on time. So it will be the bank, because the creditors are making these decisions. The court is not making these decisions. So in a way, it's good for the system because actually the creditors will realize the hit and hopefully, that will improve lending practices going ahead. Uh, so that is the truth. I mean, there is no better way to describe that. But, you know, let me go back to this question of, because it is a very um, disturbing question. All these guys, you know, DHFL, very fancy lifestyle, the ones, uh, fancy cars and stuff like that. I mean, Kingfisher is the classic example. It's but DFL. I want to... Uh,
0: you know, I'll... Right? Wait. Just a second. Yeah. DFL. They are there. They have. They are saying that we will bid. We will ourselves bid for it. to so have the money and they are filing bankruptcy. They said 75,000 crores all arrange. I have so much property. And then it gets sold to Piramal for one rupee. Now tell me, where is this discurve? Am I stupid? Am I mad? What is going on? They themselves, so, the guys who are in distress, they say that I have that much money. Why the hell did they go bankrupt? What made them? PNB went And, just, and here you just have... You have Piramal giving it to them for one rupee. Whoa! and what happens to the shareholders? What happens to the FD guys? What happens to the other guys? Everybody who has been right, AAA rating. Now, what happens to these guys?
1: So, you know, just to clarify, because this is very nuanced. uh, Piramal is not buying DHFL for one rupee. Piramal has attributed one rupee as the amount that he's likely to recover from the promoters of DHFL. There's a big difference. For example, if you look at the FD holders, the FD holders are recovering of DHFL. Are recovering the ones who have up to two lakh uh, FDs are recovering their full amount. The ones who have about two lakh FDs are recovering about 40%. So it's not like Piramal is paying one rupee for entire DHFL. I mean, uh, you know, it sounds uh, very. Uh, it's a it's a provocative statement. So it's it's great to be making it, but let's understand. You are losing 60%.
0: Uh, if you are losing 60%, you are on the receiving end of losing 60%. 40% only given is a sound statement. Looks very nice from a uh, regulatory point of view. But the guy was losing 60% of his wealth, suddenly, it's gone. In uh,
1: Dr. Mehta, let's remember that these are FDs that gave you considerably more interest than... Uh, so, everybody who invested in these FDs knew exactly the risk that comes with them. I'm not saying that a 60% haircut is justified. Whom I, who am I to say that? I don't have any FD with DHFL, right? But the point is, that everybody who invests in these instruments, okay, whether they are triple rated, and that's a credit rating agency problem, I would say, uh, they are realizing that the interest that I'm getting on the DHFL FD is much more than I'm getting on an HDFC bank FD. Please understand.
0: Green. So,
1: right? So when you negotiate for that interest rate, there is a reason you're being paid that interest rate because the company is at that level of risk. Right? But I want to actually take a step back because I want to go back to the point about fancy lifestyle promoters having the money to bail out their companies and all of that, right? So, I want to get a little philosophical here, so please don't mind me. Um, In the 1900s, we had the Industrial Revolution, right? And uh, the Industrial Revolution happened primarily in Great Britain, okay? It could have happened in the European continent uh, uh, because the conditions were same, wealth levels were same, people are the same. Why did, it, why did the Industrial Revolution happen in Great Britain and not in the European continent? Any guesses, any ideas? No. Okay, so historians suggest that the reason why the Industrial Revolution happened in Great Britain and not in the European continent is because of two reasons. One is Great Britain introduced the idea of limited liability, okay? And second is Great Britain introduced the idea of patents. We leave the patent and intellectual property aside. But what is limited liability? It's very important to understand this concept. It means that if I, Bhargavi, I have a business idea, which is worth investing in, but I don't have the money to do it. So I borrow money from friends and family. And I say that, guys, this is a great idea. If it works, it will change the world, right? Everybody says, okay, but uh, what if it doesn't work? Are you going to be able to repay us? And I say that, I don't know. It's a new idea. May or may not work. But uh, can I repay you? I will not be able to repay you if the idea fails, which is why I'm offering you this great interest rate, you know. Um, But that doesn't mean that if I fail, you take my house away, you take my kids' school fees away, you take my, you know, personal jewelry away. Limited liability shields the promoter from the liabilities of the company. The company is different from the promoter. We should be very comfortable in a market economy with the idea of limited liability, which is that we should be perfectly comfortable if a company is defaulting, but its promoters and its management are riding the Mercedes. Why why should we be comfortable with this? Because we as a society have made a trade-off that 10 ideas we all invest in, maybe three will succeed, seven will fail, we should not punish the seven failed guys if we punish the seven failed guys by taking away their kids and their wives and their personal jewelry and you know things like that nobody will take a risk nobody will invest in risky ideas and we will never be able to change you know society forever for example airbnb you know you mentioned apple um, apple by the way was a failure before it became apple and airbnb everybody knows that story airbnb failed thrice before air airbnb became airbnb you know so we It's a part of the earlier story, which is we should be comfortable with business failures. It's a part and parcel of the whole idea of destructive uh, uh, innovation. We should be comfortable with the idea of limited liability because that leads to greater risk-taking and that leads to greater innovation. Countries which have limited liability have historically fared much better than those who equate the promoter with the company. I don't want to take DHSI's example because I agree with you, maybe there was some siphoning and fraud going on, which is not yet proved. But for many other examples, we should be perfectly comfortable that Mr. Ratan Tata actually wears, uh, I don't know, some Versace, whatever, uh, ties, et cetera, uh, even if Tata Sons or whatever is not doing so well. Uh, that's the idea of limited liability. It's a, it's a trade-off that we all are uh, making as a society. Having said that, when you bring in the idea of limited liability in the DHFL example, what does it mean? That the ones are sitting in prison, they did not have the money to pay their creditors when the company was functioning, but now suddenly they have the money to bail out their company. Yeah, it's a puzzle. And that is where limited liability company, the idea, which is that the company did not have the money to pay its creditors when it was functioning, but the promoters in their personal capacity had that kind of money. Yes, it is possible that they have been tunneling and siphoning off that money from the company, in which case I would say that then this is a problem with banking regulation, the way creditors monitor their credit contracts. Uh, But I'm not so sure that you can always blame a promoter who wants to buy out his company because, you know, that's the idea of limited liability. So uh, just wanted to put that idea out there. I'm not saying it's applicable for DHFL. I'm just saying that we should, you know, use it as a philosophy across the board.
0: Yeah, for every promoter, his company is his baby. So, he definitely loves And Nobody else knows what's going on in the company better than the promoter himself. The only Yeah, absolutely. The only reason I trust more in such a case is because this person, if he's willing to buy his faults, there is something more to it than otherwise.
1: So, I'll tell you what, Mr. Mehta. So, Piramal put in his bid, etc. And his uh, resolution plan was approved by the NCLT. Again, it was not buying... Uh, DHFL for one rupee. It was, I think, the claim that Piramal made is that the amount that I will be able to recover from the Dhawans, I'm putting it at one rupee. If they've not paid the bankers, they're not going to pay me either. right? So uh, that's, that's how he was thinking about it. But if you look at the FD holders, up to 2 lakh, my understanding is everybody's being paid in full. About 2 lakh FD holders are being paid 40%. I may be wrong. Then, they, then Dhawans came in and they put up a spanner in the works and they said, I'm willing to pay more than Piramal. And the creditors said, you have exactly what you said. You haven't paid us in so many years. Why should we trust you? right? But it is the court which forced the creditors to reconsider uh, the NCLT, forced the creditors to reconsider, uh, I think, uh, their resolution plan. That's what public record suggests. So we have to see how that goes. But then that takes me back to the point of the court should never be making these commercial calls. It's the creditors and the creditors only who should be have, having the prerogative to decide how much haircut they are comfortable taking. Do they want to allow the company to live as a going concern, or do they want to liquidate it and sell it in piecemeal fashion?
0: True. What exactly happened in Yes Bank? What what is the what? Would you, according to you, was the reason why Yes Bank Yes Bank kept kept giving money to people without questions asked, huge people who could have never de- repaid loans. And what is the story of Yes Bank that you feel?
1: Okay, so I'll go back to the beginning of my talk again, because I actually mentioned two problems. And we've been focusing only on the fact that India does not have a bankruptcy law. There were two problems. The problem, the second big problem was banking regulation, which is exactly the point of evergreening and banks never having been told that you, if you give a reissue a loan to so and so, you have to actually keep aside 100% of the value of that loan for your depositors and savers. The other key principle of banking regulation is overexposure to a particular group of firms. My understanding is that yes bank was overexposed to DHFL for whatever reason, either because the DHFL guys knew them uh, well and therefore they could get it very very well. This is what you know gossip magazine suggests uh, nothing has been proved, but can we wait for it to be proved? I don't know all that, but the point is that yes. Banking regulation is a separate problem from bankruptcy. We still have to fix that. We haven't yet fixed the evergreening problem. We have only fixed the debt enforcement and reorganization problem. There is nothing to suggest that India, Indian banks will not continue evergreening, except for the fact that they, have, they are actually made to swallow these haircuts in the previous cases. right? So hopefully that should guide behavior and hopefully that will bring in a little more discipline in lending. Um, so, uh, the other thing I want to say is, um, it's a big question. Okay. There are two, three elements which influence banking in my understanding. Uh, one is political connections. A Lot of academic research to suggest that firms that are politically connected get loans more easily than firms that are not politically connected. But even if we leave that out, because how do we identify, right? I mean, how do we say it conclusively? Even if we leave that out, how do we change bankers behavior? Okay. And here it's important to understand that when a bank gives out a loan, he's giving out your and my money as the loan, correct? Uh, If he gives it to an extremely risky borrower, the banker should be made to take out money from the equity capital holders and keep it aside that in case this risky borrower doesn't pay me back, how will I honor Dr. Himanshu Mehta and Bhargavi's deposits? This is called provisioning that every time I lend to somebody who's very, very risky, I take out a little bit of money from the equity capital and I put it aside for the savers and the depositors. Our banks have not been doing that, even in that aggressive lending cycle, which is why a situation like Yes Bank comes up. When DHFL, which has borrowed a hell lot from Yes Bank refuses to pay, Yes Bank can potentially blow up and your and my deposits will go. uh, Not because DHFL has deposited, but because Yes Bank did not take adequate equity capital and keep it aside for you and me. This is called provisioning, right? So you also asked me what happens to the equity holders of DHFL. There my answer is that equity is very different from debt. Equity shares promise no return at all, right? If the firm does well, you will get exponential return. If the firm doesn't do well, you won't even get an interest payment unlike your FDs, etc. And that is again a call which equity shareholders have taken when they invested in the equity of DHFL. And when the firm cannot honor its obligations to its creditors, equity shareholders have to be wiped out. I mean, it's only it's the contract that they entered into when they invested in those equity shares. So as long as people understand what financial instruments they are investing in and what is the risk level attached to these instruments, I think. Um, uh, the allegations of fairness, unfairness can be much better dealt with.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. What you're saying is ultimately put your money in your own business rather than putting it somewhere else. You know your business better than other businesses in life.
1: Uh, I mean, if you're a professional like me, unfortunately, I don't have a choice. I'll have to put it in other people's businesses. But then I won't expect anything that's uh, not promised to me.
0: Tell me now the interesting part of Nirav Modi and uh, you know the guys who are absconded. Mehul Choksi. Now, what is the difference between uh, Vijay Malia and the other two?
1: Yeah. So I think Neera Modi and Mehul Choksi is a completely different case from Kingfisher. Why? Because Neera Modi and Mehul Choksi were actually drawing down loans which were not sanctioned to them to begin with. I mean, it was a case of complete fraud, which is where uh, I think they, I'm not going to get really technical about this, but they actually intervened in the swift system of the bank and they actually drew loans which they were not sanctioned. This is a case of complete fraud. It can be done by bribing low-level employees of banks and so on and so forth. Kingfisher is, I'm coming to you for a loan. You know, We'll do some phone banking where my friend minister will call you and then you give me the loan. So the loan is given with eyes wide open, right? uh so i wouldn't call the nira modi and mehul choksi case a classic bankruptcy sort of situation it's a fraud that happened uh and uh, and they fled the country because of which punjab national bank faced stress right um but kingfisher was different it's it's the days of phone banking which is you know which is why uh, which is the banking regulation problem i don't want to repeat that i've already said it but uh we have to be able to distinguish bankruptcy from fraud. Uh, They're two different things. Often they happen at the same time, but we shouldn't impute fraud to every bankruptcy. So for example, let's take the case of Videocon or let's take the case of Steel, right? They are also companies that spectacular, large companies that spectacularly blew up. All of us have household names, you know? Uh, And would we say that there was necessarily fraud going on there. I don't think we should equate fraud with bankruptcy. There are companies that were given excessive lending. You could argue that they shouldn't have been given the loans that they were given. And maybe that will change over time. But bankruptcy can solve those problems. Bankruptcy cannot solve the problem, bankruptcy law cannot solve the problem of a Mehul Choksi intervening in the swift system of a bank and trying to get a loan which was not sanctioned to it to begin with, right? So a very, very different case. Although on Kingfisher, I mean, I'm sure you're following the development, but uh, recently, just a couple of weeks ago, I think the creditors got a pretty fantastic recovery of about 65 to 66%. And turns out that most of those assets were actually attached by the government. I mean, it's not like uh, the creditors were sitting on it, or it was an IBC, no, nothing. Uh, The government, the ED, had attached those assets, and it was not willing to let go of the attachment. And finally, DRT said, nothing doing. you have not been able to prove fraud. I'm going to give these assets, let the creditors get it, auction it, and recover their money. You know so uh, uh, the whole the yeah. philosophy of bankruptcy is that we shouldn't shame people who been who failed at businesses. Uh, we should we should distinguish promoter from the company. The company may not be in a position to pay. The promoter may still be in a position to pay and that's perfectly fine. And um, uh, finally, fraud is not equal to bankruptcy and vice versa. Yeah,
0: but again, the same thing. The, the company guy knows, the owners know that, you know, in a short while things are not going well before filing bankruptcy. They have enough time to siphon off whatever they want to, to have a luxurious lifestyle. And then disassociate between the two, which is what we see constantly in the society right now. That's what bothers me. You know, the common man who is put in money, The you know, a lot of people, for no fault of theirs, have lost money. And uh, all banks and haircuts, which has been going on, the low interest rate. So, As far as the common man is concerned, there is so much of a loss that he is without knowing what hit him. The tsunami hits him from everywhere.
1: Yeah. No, agreed. Uh, it is a, a problem getting out of this cycle where everybody blames uh, uh, the promoter for doing wrong things. So, uh Okay, let me try to answer if bankruptcy can solve that problem where the promoter actually knows that, you know, he's going to go down under in the next six months. So let's see. Again, pre 2015, uh, dentist example. Sorry, I'm going to give the dentist example only because it's simple take to understand.
0: Doctor. I understand it better. Take the malintentions businessman who planned all these things is what bothers me. There are so many. Okay around who planned, who had in their mind, they started the business with very clear understanding that they're not going to be paying loans. That is the section the you know, the real and genuine hardworking risk takers or the startups, as you said, an Airbnb or something, the new guys, that's the PE funds. You have, you know, the new startups which have been funded by the uh, VCs, all that apart. But really what bothers you is a lot of industrialists who had fraud in their mind, executed the fraud. That's why I started that. You got to make me wise enough to have a perfect plan how can I make a fraud, you know? So that, that's what we are trying to revise. Unfortunately, if
1: we were talking before 2015, I could have advised you on the perfect plan. Unfortunately, okay. I'm going to say okay. this. You have the insolvency and bankruptcy code. Okay, so let me, say, let me try and explain how the IBC, how the insolvency and bankruptcy code fixes this, okay? What does it say? It says that if a company, okay, uh, a large uh, industrialist defaults to anybody, for 1 lakh, now that limit has been increased to 1 crore, it can be dragged to bankruptcy, okay? So suppose you don't pay employees for three months together, okay? Or you don't pay a contractor or a vendor, however small the amount, initially, that guy couldn't have taken you to bankruptcy. Today, an unpaid employee, an unpaid contractor vendor can actually take you to bankruptcy. And that's not a small deal. Why? Because the NCLT can only have to check was there a debt which means were you supposed to pay the employee and number two was there a default if there was the insolvency petition is admitted and in which case the board loses control so if you see this uh, in the us uh, they follow what is known as the debtor in possession model which is that even when a company even if you know, when your macy's was in bankruptcy the management continued to be in position the board continued to be in possession they could continue to make important decisions in india the moment an insolvency and bankruptcy laws triggered against you, the promoter loses possession, all right? Now that is turning out to be the greatest threat towards, towards not paying any creditor, however small or large the size, right? Now the ho- hope, why, okay, so I'll give you examples. Air India or Jet Airways, okay? They, Air India, you will not believe, it has not been paying its employees. The staff triggered bankruptcy against Air India. Now, Air India subsequently settled with them and therefore got out of the bankruptcy code, but Jet Airways, what happened? Uh, Jet Airways was a cross-border you know, particularly complex example, but when a promoter does a fraud, the first people generally who are hit by that fraud are unpaid employees, unpaid contractors, unpaid vendors, unpaid stenographers, unpaid chaiwalas. Today, the bankruptcy code empowers even them to trigger the code, and once that code is triggered, they lose possession. Now, that's a huge disincentive to not keep paying your creditors, and that's what the law has tried to plug. Will it work? You can argue, but people can game it also. I don't know, but I haven't seen people being able to game that part at least. So let's see. I mean, we are five years into this law. One year, this law was suspended. I'm not holding a brief for the government or anything. I don't work with the government, but uh, it seems to me that the threat that any small guy can also trigger the bankruptcy against a large corporation, and the NCLT will admit it, and the board will be suspended, and the promoter loses control and decision making. It's a good enough threat to be, you know, disciplined towards everybody in paying your dues.
0: So, how does a firm get into liquidation? What exactly is is the criteria? What what all guidelines are given? Whether you say that the firm has gone into liquidation
1: yeah so okay so what happens right so we are at that stage where the bankruptcy code is triggered against you by going to the nclt okay the creditors committee sits around the table these are largely you know the financial creditors your bondholders and your banks and financial institutions they sit around the table and they say hmm. let's figure out whether this is a business failure or whether this is a financial failure they keep, proc- what, what does it mean? It basically means they make a list of all the assets and running operations of the company. And they say that if we sell this as a going concern, we'll actually get a pretty decent value. They put up the firm for sale, okay? 180 days expire, 270 days expire, 330 days expire. Nobody wants to buy this firm on a going concern. The, in that case, on the expiry of the 330th day, the firm automatically goes into liquidation because it basically tells you that, you know, nobody finds value in this going concern in this form as a going concern, it goes into liquidation. Another scenario that can play out is creditors committees sitting around the table, and they keep they keep getting offers, you know, offers which offer which say that we are willing to buy the firm, but you take a 40% haircut. Or you take a 55% haircut, you take a 60% haircut, right? The creditors actually are not able to decide. They keep procrastinating. And the 3.30th day timeline is hit. If they do not approve a resolution plan by the 3.30th day, the firm automatically goes into liquidation. Why was this designed? It sounds really harsh, but why, why was it designed this way? It was designed this way because of the Indian experience where bankers actually keep procrastinating on taking haircuts. At some point... You have to bite the bullet and say it was a lending decision that went wrong. Maybe it was not made by me. Maybe it was made by my predecessor, but too bad. Right now, today, I have to make that call. You have to bite the bullet and say, okay, 45% haircut, but I'm going to take what I get and I'm going to leave from here. Right? But bankers never took
0: that call. Why would anybody take the responsibility? Somebody else's responsibility. And for generations together, it went on. Now, tell me something interesting which happened during this time. All the losses all the NPs of these bank have suddenly been transferred to another loss-making place. So the bank, suddenly their balance sheet becomes very clean. Now, what is this? Yeah. All your losses are given to somebody else. Now, come on. good. How right. do you
1: know that other place is loss making? How do we know that other place is loss making? Just curious. I don't know.
0: No, I'm, I'm asking you that it's how, such a nice way to just pass on the buck to here. There you go.
1: Okay. Okay. So fine. So this is the whole idea of securitization and credit recycling, right? Which is, and it's, a, it's frankly a good thing, which is that, okay. Today, I'm sitting on banks, uh, I'm sitting, I'm a bank, okay, and I'm sitting on this, all this debt. And I don't know whether somebody will pay or not pay. I'm not going to go to the court. So what do I do? I recycle it and I ask everybody in the market, I'm going to recover about 90 or 80 cents to the dollar, okay? Uh, you at- actually have fantastic recovery capacity and you may be able to recover more than me. Okay, do you want to give me 80 cents and then you recover how much ever you can. This is called securitization where you are actually, you are taking that 10% haircut in the beginning in anticipation that actually if I don't take that haircut now, it will, things will only get worse, right? And you pass it on to somebody else who is like a hedge fund or somebody who's much more sophisticated at credit recovery than the bank, right? And the bank has favors. Uh, Let me just finish. This is exactly what happened in the 2008 crisis. What is going on there? Do you know that in 2018, when, you know, 10 years had elapsed since the great financial crisis, there were hedge funds that actually made money by buying off those junk bonds in the middle, in the, in the peak of 2008. Why? Is it because that, is it because Why? Because, you know, they had the capacity to be able to recover that money. They were specialized people. They could take the haircut that a bank cannot take. So, uh, that's the whole idea. Now, if you're referring to specific examples, I'm happy to discuss them.
0: No, no, not specific. But you're talking of US, you know, 80 cents to a dollar. But you're talking of US, where where, there is so much of uh, securitization. There is a totally different economy than what we're talking about in India. The only way it can be handled is by the underworld otherwise. What you are trying to say is you are passing on the bank to. If these guys could never recover money, who is going to recover that money? So I am just asking you. So what I am saying. No, the
1: key is the key is Himanshu. The key is Dr. Mehta that they are not going to recover the full amount. Ah. They are going to recover lesser than the full amount, Mm -hmm. and they very well realize that. But they are buying also that bond for way lesser. So you see, it's it's a, okay. It's the fundamental principle of economics of risk allocation. If I am a sophisticated invest, investor, I will say that actually, uh, uh, Dr. Meta is a you know is a dent uh, is an uh, uh, is a ophthalmologist, and he doesn't have the risk appetite that I do, and I will be able to recover more than what he can recover, but not the full amount. It's never the full amount, right? So somebody's taking a haircut somewhere, but the point is that banks have savers, which means that they need to be able to get rid of this debt faster than what a hedge fund needs to do. Now, the investors in the hedge fund are not fools. Okay. So they also, they have also, they also realize the risk of this investment. And they take that call that this return may go completely bad, or I may make a fantastic return on it because this hedge fund is damn good at making recoveries. And they are taking that risk and that is exactly the risk i'm sorry to say the bondholders of yes bank or the bondholders of uh, you know your dhfl took I'm getting a higher return on an, of a dhfl FD uh, compared to hdfc bank i'm going to make that call. i'm going to take that risk you could argue that those bonds and fds were missold to these guys they, they shouldn't have been sold to these guys to begin with that's a fair call but when you are making when i invest in the fd of Sriram transport which gives me a you know 12% 13% return versus HDFC FD which gives me a 7% 8% return. I know very well that I'm taking I'm getting a higher return because Shriram Transport is more likely to is less regulated, uh, much more likely to face risk than HDFC bank. These are conscious calls that we all take as investors.
0: So greed, everybody plays like Bernie Madoff. It's ultimately you're playing on the psych of greed. So the more you offer, if it's any, anything which is too good to be true, don't believe that it's ever going to be true. And that is the whole story that you're trying to give right to. Now tell me in this era with COVID and with so many things, you know, like in municipal hospitals, uh, my friends tell me that the suicide rate has gone up. Putut Finance, somebody showed me some documents saying that su- such a huge lot of people who have not been able to Get back that jewelry. So they've sold it in the market. What are you forcing in the next few months to years to see the after effect? We are in a great buoyant mood because a lot of things are not reported. We still don't know the after effect of COVID. Where do we stand? The stock markets are buoyant. So everybody thinks everything is fine. US is printing big money. Take the money. Money is given free, 0% interest. Here, Manto, Yelelo, so there's huge money being spread, spreading around everywhere in the world. Money is free growing on trees at this point in time, but we are going to be paying a price somewhere across the line. And uh, when when the ball stops rolling somewhere, you know, passing the parcel, where are we headed towards in the next six eight months? What do we look at the NPAs? A lot of common men uh, industry showing great business where you, you, you know so many people are shutting down. What is the discrepancy? Where are we, and what is going on?
1: Yeah. So you're asking me the question, when will the party stop, right, <laughs> on the exchange? No, I'm sorry. Okay, so I'm an, uh, so I'm going to make my classic uh, lawyer disclaimer, which is that I'm not an economist, so I don't understand these things very well. But to the extent that I do understand them, there are three things that are going on right now, okay? First of all, during COVID, bankruptcy law was suspended. Banks were not allowed to recover uh, EMIs, etc. And... Banks were also, you know, sort of showing forbearance and saying that it's it's understandable if people are not able to pay, you can't do much about it. And this is, we'll, we'll get on with life. However, the problem is exactly what you mentioned which is that we don't know what is the extent of the loss that banks need to take. Uh, I'm not sure if banks also know this. Um, if in an ideal world, the banks know this and they actually, make provisions from their capital. They take out money that should have come to you and me from their capital and uh, what is called as provisioning and uh, they come out clean, right? Um, In which case, again, the equity shareholders of banks suffer. Okay, so that's one story that's playing out. The second story that's playing out is exact, again, like you mentioned, Monetary policy is extremely loose right now. is likely to be as such. I don't know if you saw Mr. Shaktikanta Das's statement today. It's likely to be loose for the next maybe one or two years in India, and that is leading to inflation. Uh, I think we all are feeling the pinch of petrol price above hundred and so we on. And so so.
0: Not much.
1: Yeah, I mean <laughs> you know. <laughs> so yeah, so we are going to see higher inflation and. Uh, when it comes to individuals, right? What are individuals likely to do? Um, individual loans are typically secured. So if you take a home loan, your mortgage is your home is mortgaged. If you take a vehicle loan, vehicle is mortgaged, and so on and so forth. My suspicion is that banks will just sell those, sell the home, sell the fact. There's no other way to do this. The money that it will get by those sales will, of course, be much lower. And again, then we go down to banking regulation and say bank then has to take out the capital from the equity shareholders' pocket and put it back to honor its obligations to savers. So uh, we will not know the answer until banks come out clean with the extent of defaults that they are seeing on on, on an ongoing basis. Any other answer is a guess.
0: Right. Lovely disclaimers, so I like the act of omission and the act of commission, Bhargavi mm-hmm. had in the last one hour. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Bhargavi. A lot of, lot of things that have been cleared up and uh, your insight, your understanding of the subject, absolutely brilliant, impressive. And uh, knowing the economy so well, the legal part of it, what's going on in the banking system, the IBC, the NCLT. Wow, amazing. A lot, lot of understanding. But still, you, know, you haven't taught me how to make the perfect heist how am I going to plan the next act so that, you know, I can come out unscathed and make a couple of thousand crores here. You know, you, you have I, I
1: I charge for that kind of advice. Uh-huh. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. That's not free. <laughs> that's it. That's, it. that's the party. It. Now that's the last call that the lawyer has said, the per- perfect one. Thanks so much uh, for being here, friends. and.